One of the most important lessons, I think, is to really integrate and embody that coaching essentially is an act of unconditional love for the potential of the client, right? It's that space where there is absolutely no judgment, but loving curiosity about what greatness can emerge from the client. Hi, I'm Alex Pascal, CEO of Coaching.com, and this is Coaches on Zoom Drinking Coffee. My guest today has served over 1,400 leaders and dozens of executive teams since 2006, visiting over 35 countries on six continents to partner with them. Passionate about helping the coaching profession grow, he served as the chairman of the Global Board of the ICF in 2019. And in recent years, he's one of the highest rated WBEX by Coaching.com Summit speakers. Please welcome Sean Francois Cassant. Hey, Alex. JF, how are you? Good, Dan. Happy to see you. Thanks for having me, Alex. How are you yourself? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. You were just reminding me a few minutes ago that we actually met in person years ago at the conference board, coaching conference in New York, where back when we used to go to in-person conferences, which hopefully are coming back. <laughs> <laughs> you presented coaching and technology and you were totally magnetic. Uh, I remember what you said. Yeah, that was uh, high impact. Great job you did, Dan. Thank you. A friend of mine the other day told me, well, we'll name her Shauna Waters that works at, at BetterUp, told me I was her favorite, was an agitator. Am I blanking on, on the word? But I just like to, you know, be a little controversial when I'm talking about coaching and technology and really thinking about the business models underlying coaching and technology. So sometimes in certain crowds, I like to just say some controversial things about business models and people get either very excited or very not that excited. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I'll have to clarify what I'm talking about later on in the episode. Also, we'll talk about what's happening in coaching, which I think is really exciting, you know, what we've seen in the last 10 years. So we'll talk about all of that. And I am sure I'll remember the the scriptor that Shauna used for me in that meeting we had recently. But it's such a pleasure to have you join us today. You're past president of the global part of the global board of the ICF, and you've done a lot of fantastic work. So I am actually very curious to learn more about your coaching journey. I know you used to be an executive turned coach and you've written a book that we'll talk about. So very accomplished career and over 15,000 hours as a coach. So really cool to explore many different topics with you today. Thanks, Alex, again for having me. A pleasure, really. And thanks for what you're doing, all of what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Uh, and before we get started, I don't think I've ever taken so long to ask this question. So coaches on Zoom drinking coffee. We don't always drink coffee, but we always drink something together. So what are we drinking today, JF? We are drinking green tea, actually. And I'd love to uh, state that quote from a French author and philosopher called Muriel Barberi. She said uh, something like, when tea becomes ritual, it takes its place at the heart of our ability to see greatness in small things. And then she asked the question, where is beauty to be found? And, and those two words like greatness and beauty are very important to me, Alex. So, so much for the quote and for, for green tea. <laughs> I love it. The, the beauty in, in small things. That's such an important reminder. 
we go through our lives every day, sometimes not really thinking too much about the little details, sometimes focusing on on just the joy that you get with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea is, is an important reminder of how the little things make life better. A moment of mindfulness, right? With uh, relaxation, beauty involved, can provide inspiration for, for a while along the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Love that. So let's start at the beginning of your coaching journey. Do you remember that moment or that period where you recognized there was this thing called coaching and you were interested in it? Yeah, I do, Alexia. That was towards the end of my first career uh, in corporate. And I, I was about 40, actually, Alex, and had reached a level in corporate where if I was promoted another time, then I would swim in oceans of politics. And that uh, did not appear very attractive to me, Alex. And I scratched my head uh, to find what else could there be uh, as a career, right? The development for me. Couldn't find anything with my head, but then my heart started screaming. It's people. You're all about people. What you love in leadership is people. So go and explore that, right? And and then I'm an engineer by background, right, Alex? So I put the engineer's hat and I explored and coaching st stood up. It was like uh, 17 years ago, right? Quite a long time, right? And then felt really right. I thought perhaps, uh, yeah, I can try, right? Uh, and so I decided to take the jump, right? My colleagues were thinking I was beyond insane, right? Uh, but I did it, yeah. <laughs> All from the heart and, and the guts, uh, I guess. And so I went to coaching school and I established myself in Bangkok. Where did you go for school? I see, based in Australia, International Coaching Academy. And so I did the curriculum. And at the same time, I, I established myself in Asia because there was no coaching much in Asia at that time. So I thought, okay, let's go. And with some other pioneers in Asia, attempt to create a market for coaching, right? And I went to beg. Uh, I had been based in several uh, leadership positions in Asia in my in my, my career, right? So I knew many people and I went to uh, literally beg door to door, Alex, as I was learning at school. And some people gave me some uh, middle managers to coach, right? That's uh, where you start. And I did that and I loved it. And well, I'm still there <laughs> in Asia. I'm still doing only coaching. I'm a blue collar worker. I like to say, uh, Alex, I'm a monotask guy. Only one activity morning evening afternoon seven days a week <laughs> monotask well when an engineer turns coach you know there's a very methodical process right to i'm sure to run you know as, as we're talking about like your career transition i'm thinking there's so much to coaching because you essentially are becoming an entrepreneur when you decide to be a coach right so you're a career executive and now you're getting trained in specific methodologies then you have to go and look for clients and run your business and do what is your new passion that is really not a new passion but it's an old passion reimagined right now you can make this a business so how were the first couple of years, you know, living in Asia, you get certified and you start working with the clients? Were you specializing in a specific vertical? Were you working with a specific type of manager, executive? Tell me a little bit more about those initial years running your coaching business. Yeah. Well, Alex, truthfully, I did all mistakes possible. For instance, I 
branded myself as uh, the jack of all trading coaching, right? Uh, career coaching, life coaching, executive coaching, whatever. And I was glad at that time because coaching was not known, I could be forgiven for what is insanity, really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a very, very bad thing to do, right? Uh, we've got to find our niche before we get out of coaching school. And it's, at, I think, the confluence or the intersection of our purpose, what type of difference we aspire to make, right? Uh, at also the, at the intersection with what experience we have and also at the intersection of where there's money to pay for our services, in fact, right? And for me, well, I was credible in uh, the corporate world, right? Uh, because I had been uh, in leadership positions. I aspired purpose, right, to uh, unleash greatness in, in people. And there was money in corporate. So then eventually I had the sanity <laughs> to decide I, I was going to do, to be an executive coach and just that nothing else, in fact, right? And, and of course, once you are an executive coach or any other type of coach, right, you, you get business from other areas because people are drawn to you. But first, you've got to get your niche, right? So don't do my mistake. <laughs> be focused. Well, <laughs> If people are interested in watching you coach, they can find a lot of resources on the coaching.com ecosystem because you've done a lot of demos for us is at the WBAC Summit by coaching.com. And those demos are usually super popular. I actually think we have one available. Just if you create an account on coaching.com, we provide 10 sessions that you can watch from the, some of the most watched sessions from the previous summit. And I believe you, one of your sessions was there and I believe it's still there. So if not, just email us if you're listening to the podcast and you want to have access to YNOJF's coaching demos and we'll definitely send them your way so very popular and it's, it's so i've seen you in action in one of your interactions with a client so you have over fifteen thousand hours of, of coaching what are some of the lessons if you were to summarize a few that you've learned i mean you started with the first one around how you market yourself a jack of all trades well maybe not really maybe i should be more specialized let's say executive coaching what are some of the other lessons when you look back at over fifteen thousand hours of coaching one of the most important lessons i think is to really integrate and embody that coaching essentially is an act of unconditional love for the potential of the client, right? It's that space where there is absolutely no judgment, but loving curiosity about what greatness can emerge from the client. And the client has to feel that kind of love from you as a coach. The very first half of a second, the client sees you on Zoom or face-to-face, -face, right? And that's a very unique space. Even their spouse does not love them in that way, right? There is always an agenda for them or preconceived ideas about how they should be and how they should do stuff. But for us, coach, no. We open that space where they are not judged, they are loved for their potential, and then, of course, they're going to unleash it. That's really important to, again, integrate and embody, right? That unconditional love. And the second, perhaps, lesson is the importance of being authentic and humble and vulnerable, fully yourself, so that 
the client can also be fully themselves and humble and vulnerable and therefore bring to the conversation everything that crosses their mind or they feel in their heart or in their guts, right? And then we have rich conversations. And also think of it, uh, Alex, we are in perhaps the most humble job in the world. There is no credit going to coaches. The superheroes are always the client. That's how it has to be. We kind of backstage operators. It's a humble profession. And so tactically and just out of uh, integrity, being humble, vulnerable, our authentic self is extremely important. And then perhaps another lesson uh, for the road, Alex, it's the importance to completely integrate the definition of the ICF about coaching, which is anchored in partnership. Right? Many of us, and particularly me, at the beginning, we've got the syndrome of the imposter. Who am I, if not a total fraud, to coach that uh, great successful executive, for instance? Really, who am I, right? I've never attained the level of success they have. And it's important to think, hey, we're just a thinking partner. Yeah, we're there to create that space and perhaps ask a couple of questions that will help them elicit their best thinking uh, and express all of what they have to express uh, in their body. Uh, come on, you don't need to be really anybody, but just do the job. Be a partner. That's really important to integrate, to overcome the imposter syndrome. And that I think beats at all of us when we begin. Uh, Makes sense, uh, Alex? Absolutely. And the imposter syndrome is, is interesting because a lot of clients that we encounter out there in the wild are actually suffering from imposter syndrome. I think it's a pretty highly prevalent aspect on, of the way people relate to themselves. And I think it's also part of the kind of world that we live in today where the impact that we can have working in organizations is so high and it's so pervasive across the world that it's, it's almost like, how can I be making all these happen? How can I be running these large organizations? And I think it happens to a lot of people. I think from the research, I think it happens more to women as well. To be able to be present as a coach and understand your value and not try to provide too much value, but just provide the right amount of value. I think that comes with expertise, right? So across thousands of hours of coaching, I think you start recognizing it's, it's similar to when you recognize, like in the Socratic approach, I only know I know nothing. And that's a really good starting point for looking at things in a different way. I think the reason why we call it a coaching practice is because as a coach, once you get really good, you make something look very easy, but it's actually very difficult. Creating that partnership with a client, being there for them, providing support, but also challenging them in the right measure and not making it about yourself but making it about the client all of that really speaks to the dynamic nature of the coaching profession. And it's really an experiential evolving practice. That is one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by coaching. Yeah, I'd love to rebound on two things you said, right, uh, Alexa? Uh, the second first, which is all we know is we know nothing, right? It's so very important. We coach at our best when we have no clue of what could be a solution to the client's problem, right? And we coach at our very worst when our 
brain is polluted by ideas of possibilities of solution. And perhaps the ultimate proof of this is my first interaction with a, a young tech guy, a founder of a startup, 10 times more brilliant than me, at least perhaps 100 times in terms of intellectual speed. Plus, he was speaking at, uh, with acronyms. I had no clue what he was telling, about, telling me about. <laughs> right? And so I hardly opened my mouth along the first hour we spent together. And I thought to myself when he left, that must be such a disaster. <laughs> I felt so bad. <laughs> and then just uh, the next day, he said, OK, when can we schedule our next session? And to this day, so quite uh, many years later, I'm still his thinking partner. And I still have not much clue what he's telling me, right? Uh, because I'm that thick, right? Uh, that dumb, right? And he finds immense value. He also recommended me to several of his friends. And I have no clue what they're talking about, right? But they enjoy that space where they can often get to common sense, right? Because they were very complex business models and they lose a sense of, they lose common sense sometimes, right? That's one. Another one is it's very difficult for them to arrive at simplicity, right? And of course, I'm like a peasant in the good way and my family is from the farm, right? So uh, I mean that respectfully. I'm like a, a peasant with common sense and I like things simple, you know, because this is going to work. That's what they get from me, right? And they treasure that, right? So again, very, very humble job. Second thing I wanted to rebound on is when you say, Alex, women can have imposter syndrome uh, at least as much as male. And I would love to tell to the women who listen to us, you were born genetically better leaders than men. Uh, and there's tons of research that proves that, right? And one of the most striking, I think, in the, is a survey from several years ago that stands the test of time, and that's from Grant Thornton. Actually, is that uh, consulting company studied 10,360 surveys, in fact, 5,000 from men, 5,000 from women, right? So 360 surveys are those surveys where people, colleagues, co-workers are invited to rate on a number of competencies, the, the leader that is the subject of the 360 survey, right? So 5,000 women, 5,000 men were the subject of these 10,000 surveys. And there were 16 competencies. Uh, women came out with higher ratings on 13 of the competencies uh, were on par with men on two, and uh, men were higher in competency on one, which is strategic thinking, in fact. And it all makes sense, right? That goes back to when we were in the Savannah. The men were hunting. They needed to be strategic, right? Uh, at least tactical, to kill their preys. And the women did all the rest. So again, hold your head high. You are better leaders in general than men. And men, don't take it badly. Take this as an opportunity to activate more of your femininity. Yeah? Then you are a more complete leader. I hope I'm not shocking anybody here, uh, Alex. Um, <laughs> please stay tuned. We've got more to uh, offer. Perhaps you'll like it better. <laughs> no, so many things to, to unpack here. Like, so many things to unpack. So, so in terms of activating the femininity, I agree. I think we're now living in times where men are more comfortable recognizing that they have a what we can refer to as a feminine side. And women have to spend less time in the workforce thinking about how to come across and they can just come across as they are and unleash that creative power of the relationship-oriented female approach that is so important for business. I'm not surprised that research shows that women are better leaders than men. I mean, women tend to be more relationship-oriented and, you know, as we know, business is a game of 
relationships and being mindful about them and men tend to be more individualistic. There's so much to unpack in, in what you were saying. I do think men should be more in tune with their feminine side. And I think we're, we hear a lot about toxic masculinity. And I think a lot of men suffer from that. You know, it's, it, there's a part of yourself that you feel like you can't identify with and creates this struggle. And I think we're making good progress in the world in terms of talking about these issues and creating workplaces that are better for women to thrive in and also creating a world in which men can feel more comfortable with aspects of themselves that, you know, boys don't cry. That kind of way of looking at the world, I think, is is slowly, hopefully kind of coming to a transitionary period or we're definitely in that transition period. But I want to go back to something you said you were because one of the common things that comes up in coaching is that there are two camps and maybe some camps in between of thinking about coaching as being really question oriented and you should never provide advice and other camps that are all about the coach asking great questions, but also leaning into the advice when it feels appropriate. I think the answer is probably somewhere in between where I think depends on the client, depends on the coach, depends on the relationship. And it is a pretty nuanced topic, one that I know is controversial. And in a lot of ICF circles, it is really very question-oriented. So I would love to hear more about your philosophy around, is coaching really exclusively question-oriented? Is there room for advice? Tell us everything about your thoughts on this topic, JF. Yeah, uh, with pleasure. And it's going to be very practical. Yeah, coaching is all about unleashing the best possible thinking and clarification from the client, right? But then there are moments where the client misses some experience or maturity, wisdom, right? Or data to conclude their thinking in a robust way, which means at that moment, coaching will not help them invent what they miss some elements to invent, right? And that's where we need to shift into mentoring. So ask the permission to the client to perhaps add uh, some element of data, wisdom, experience for their consideration. So that is shifting into mentoring for a minute, because without it, uh, the client will uh, not get to a robust solution because they have blind spots. And then we can go back to coaching. Now, when we do that, number one, it, we've got to ask for permission. And number two, since we give something, right, elements, again, of data, of experience or maturity, wisdom, we, we've got to, in a way, make the client pay for it. That's not nice words, but it, it's really for the best for the client. It's like, it's all too likely that they're going to say, oh, wow, yeah, that is great. Oh, my, yeah, exactly what I need to do. Wow, wow, bullshit. A priori, this is bullshit, right? It's just like, wow, they, they like a, a firework. No, it's uh, all too easy. No, no, we're going to make pay for it by challenging them. Yeah. So tell me more about what's really cool about that and how applicable it is to your world, pros and cons, what can go wrong and all that until they appropriate the idea and probably evolve it into something that is robust. So then we're back in coaching already. Make sense, uh, Alex? Absolutely. And I think, you know, advice sometimes can be used as a crutch to not take the client through the process, through a coaching process to get to an answer. So the coach, I think it's perfectly fine for the coach to see where the coach wants the client to go. But then sometimes it's almost like a shortcut to provide advice versus asking the questions that will take the client in that path, which is a very different way to get to a, a conclusion. I think advice is fine. And 
I would necessarily not even go outside of the role of the coach and say, may I come out of this role? In my experience, you know, I would different takes, right? Like, I really appreciate you saying, like, I'm going to get out of the coach role and I'm going to do some mentoring. Is that okay? I think that, that to me is like a stylistic thing. So I think that's your style. A hundred percent. I think that that is a good path. For me, that wouldn't feel like it's genuine, for example. So I will probably reference that, look, that was going to provide some advice. So maybe I'll make the transition a little bit less marked. But I think marking it and making sure that the client understands that transition is also very important. So I think that's a little bit on the on the range of different approaches, right? So yeah. but what I worry about advice when I'm doing coaching is that I see do see it as a crutch. And sometimes, you know, you just want to cut the corner and go somewhere a little bit faster. I think in some cases it's good. And in some cases, the client really needs to walk that path to come up with that solution. And I think recognizing that and fine tuning, that to me is what I look for versus make sure that I let them know that I'm, I'm going to go outside of the roles. It's, it's interesting. I think both different approaches, both valid, depending on, you know, the coach's style and what you're trying to accomplish. But that was, that was very interesting. I, you know, you remind me of kind of Coach training, when you were kind of getting out of that role, you know, there's definitely a lot of that that I saw going through coach training. I went through my coach training at CCL, uh, the Center for Creative Leadership, the new coach orientation program that they have. So, yeah, I don't think I've ever talked about that before in the podcast. Ah, yeah. Well, I, I worked uh, as, as a, an associate coach, right, for, for quite many years with CCL, right? Not, not recently, but nice community. Yeah, it really is a nice community. You know what? I remember what was the word that Shauna Waters used to describe me when you were talking about the presentation you saw in New York. So I said, we'll come back to it at some point. So I want to bring that up. And I want us to talk about, you know, what the latest happenings in coaching, let's say what you've seen in the last five years or so, and how technology is changing the landscape of coaching for good, for bad, for whatever you think. I, I'm curious to hear your opinion. So she called me her favorite provocateur. Yes. So I guess there's these two terms that I used to describe the business models in coaching. This is an aggregation model and an integration model. So I always talk about coaching.com as we're an integrator. So in an industry field with aggregators, because the coaching business model is an aggregation model. So you have independent coaches and you have coaching companies that aggregate those coaches. They make sure that there's a layer of quality supervision. There's a development model that gets used with clients. But all these independently contracted coaches, you aggregate them, you aggregate content, and then you go package that and sell it to an enterprise. So that is an aggregation model. And when you look at the coaching industry, whether it's a tech-enabled coaching firm, a traditional coaching provider that's boutique or a global provider like CCL, they follow an aggregation model. So just being a little controversial in some situations, some conferences, but that was a word provocateur. So I guess I'm, I'm a little bit of a provocateur. It sounds like you like the presentation at the conference board, which was many years ago now, probably five, six years, perhaps. So would love to learn more about your experience in terms of how coaching has been changing with the use of technology over the last, let's say, five to 10 years. Yeah. So thanks. I see pros and cons to uh, that evolution of democratization of coaching, right? Uh, so the pros obviously are uh, with, with technology, we, we can reach, well, the, the industry can serve so many more, right? Uh, on a rather cost-effective uh, basis. That's great. Now, a serious con is the quality of the services provided. Often uh, when companies want more of their people to benefit from coaching, they are on very tight budget. 
And therefore, they will offer very limited coaching to their managers, to mid-level managers. So is that good or bad? It can be both, actually. It can be good for whatever session they have, but it can also be bad because uh, the work is not totally finished. And also, uh, another thing is some of the aggregators pay their coaches, I believe, very little. And so how can this uh, motivate coaches to bring out their best, right? So perhaps they have to book 20 hours a month for that aggregator. And out of those 20 hours, they don't sell to anybody else. They will have only seven, 30-minute focused laser coaching session. This is very, very bad business, in fact. So how is a coach going to be motivated to do their best, uh, take care of their continuous education if they are paid so little for, for so big a commitment? So I'm very worried about that, that thing. So, so my invitation is to, to aggregators is, right, just uh, be totally respectful of coaches. For the sake of business, it's going to be good for business, right? If your coaches feel uh, respected and feel that it's good doing business with you, aggregator. Yeah, and the aggregator could be, it's a, it's a model and it could be a well-paid model. So I think, you know, it, you can be an aggregator, like any coaching companies and aggregators. So some are well-paid, some are not well-paid. And I think we've seen some of that out there. But I think that the use of technology in coaching and like the tech-enabled coaching firms have really done a lot to bring the conversation to people that now know that they may want to work with a coach and companies are making coaching more available than ever before. There's definitely challenges with every emerging model, but all in all, I think the overarchingly, the impact of uh, the last five, six, seven, almost 10 years now has been positive. I mean, we, I remember when I started first raising money for coach logics that then became coaching.com investors would be like, it, it really sounds like you understand this market, but why coaching? What would any company pay for coaching services? For the, I can see it for executives, but anyone else. So now really the conversation has shifted, right? And everyone knows what a coach is. It's not like, oh, you mean like a tennis coach? Oh, you mean like a soccer coach? No, it's like everyone knows like, wow, there's these people out there that can help you be more in tune with your goals, help them achieve them, whether it's personal, professional, and it could also help organizations develop, which is really cool. I think our profession has gotten validated. Absolutely. And in no small part, thanks to the work you did and some others did as well, right, in making possible to democratize coaching, right, making it accessible to a far greater number of uh, people than before, right? So cheers to that. Cheers to that. Yeah, no, it's an exciting time. I think there's more people getting coaching every year, which is really exciting. And yeah, the supply of coaches, the increased supply of coaches is very interesting. I think coach training organizations are doing really well. There is an increased need for coaching, but also an increased interest. And as a lot of the boomer generation retires from the workplace, I think a lot of baby boomers are finding that getting certified in coaching and starting a coaching business is actually a really good path for kind of like a semi-retirement kind of lifestyle where you can make good money, you can work with younger generations in the workplace and be prepared to help them be more effective, more efficient, be more in tune with their values. I mean, there's so much knowledge of a generation that leads the workforce. So coaching could be a really good tool 
to impart that knowledge uh, through questions and a little advice. <laughs> and to those of us, to, to those of you who listen to us, right, and who are boomers and perhaps about to retire, uh, another strong benefit I see from engaging in uh, coaching education and then doing some coaching right, is it will keep you young forever. Because Einstein <laughs> said, the moment you stop learning, you start dying. And coaching, in essence, is you're going to learn so much from your the young people you're going to coach. You learn as much as they learn along the coaching interaction, in fact. Huh? I agree. A great coaches always have a, a extremely positive energy, Alex. You, you notice that. They're young at heart, right? Because they learn every hour of their days uh, when they coach. So it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So I want to tap into some of the lessons that you've had from doing so much coaching. So, you know, what are some of the main reasons that you think leaders and people in organizations are hiring coaches right now? Thanks for the question. That's another important moment in the conversation, right? Why? So what what I've observed and colleagues are observing as well, particularly over the last two and a half years since the pandemic unleashed uh, itself, is unprecedented level of tiredness. People feel so very tired and and for real reasons, you know, in in such a crisis, the the, the mind, which is essentially a tool to bring clarity, safety, right, uh, is exhausted, right, because there is no clarity, there is no safety. And and so that's the first reason uh, people hire coaches at the moment over the last uh, couple of years, right, Alex, in, in my experience. Yes, I feel tired, uh, but really, really tired. And so what we're going to do is explore at a deep level what's depleting their physical stamina, their intellectual vigor, if you will, their emotional resilience, uh, Alex. And then we'll find often that there are some kind of basic needs or basic rights that they have sacrificed, uh, particularly women, in fact, at a dear cost to their well-being. And so they've got to reprioritize self-care embrace some activities that will uh, maintain their health in a holistic fashion. In fact, that's any coaching engagement, uh, executive coaching engagement, Alex, always starts with kind of an assessment of the, the health, the well-being of the, uh, the coachee. Yeah, so that's the first reason, tiredness. Another reason, Alex, that abounds is that feeling of overwhelm. And uh, in the pandemic, it was exacerbated. I think it's like I'm overwhelmed by the ever-growing number of expectations from me. And so we've got to work with the client. So they extract themselves from victimhood. Uh, they reclaim their confidence, their capability to make decisions, and, and then rise above the expectations, whatever they are, to see what matters most, right? And then arbitrate between competing priorities and, and then communicate their choice, right? That, that is really uh, important. And yeah, one of the main reasons, Alex, at the moment, why we get some business uh, in 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 coaching. Yeah. Uh, and then there will be also those uh, executives who need a, a thinking partner to clarify their strategy or their vision or uh, their way forward as a business. Those who will be interested in uh, developing a culture of excellence or re-engaging their workforce or promoting more diversity in the workplace. Right. And there again, we're going to act as a, as a challenging thinking partner, Alex. Uh, another big ticket item in, in our field, right, is those 
executives, managers who want to gain influencing skills, right? In a highly complex environment with lots of politics, uh, like matrix organizations uh, playing the game with global functions in, in corporate, right? And, and so finding out through deep work, Alex, right, how they can enhance their self-confidence in the first place and then gain that influence. Yeah, that's a big ticket at the moment, uh, Alex. And then there's also uh, quite often over the last two and a half years in particular, and that I think is going to continue for a while at least, that help they seek to make tough decisions, for example, restructuring, so letting go of some people. And they want to be respectful and do that in the best way. But it's uh, preventing them from sleeping at night, right? And then we're going to work with them uh, in coaching, right? So they find the best way to protect the organization's future and then the best support for those people who will be uh, impacted negatively. And that will be of tremendous value to them, to the organization, and to the people as well who are impacted. That would be some of the most frequent topic at the moment. Alex, how does that resonate with you? Yeah, it absolutely resonates. I think we're still learning a lot from those pandemic years. Uh, it seems now we're like in this post-pandemic stage. And I think the focus on well-being as part of coaching really kind of rose through the ranks of the topics and themes that coaches were working with their clients on their engagements because <laughs> the world is very different and the world of work is very different post-pandemic. You mentioned layoffs as well. I mean, every other company is going through a layoff right now and it is hard for executives to manage that process, whether you're a decision maker or whether you're someone that might be in a position to lose their job. I mean, when you're working with coaches, I mean, those are things that come up, right? How do I lay off people in a way that aligns with my values when my values don't include laying people off, but I have to, right? Or how do I start planning potentially for a new job since you know, I may be losing my job. This also reminds me of one of the proverbial issues in the coaching profession, which is, you know, who's your client, the coachee, the organization that's paying for the coaching. I think that dual agency problem is, is always there for coaches that work in organizational systems. Anything to say about that relationship, you know, it's like, how do you communicate to your client? Like, who's the client? How do you share the boundaries of confidentiality? It's like, how do you deal with that, JF? For me, it's easy, Alex. Uh, th there is no duality here. I have only one client that is my coachee. I, I serve my coachee. And so with absolute confidentiality and those organizations who don't wish that coaching is played in that manner, then they can hire somebody else, but not me. So that's very clear from the start. Then I explained to companies that up to 50%, believe it or not, up to 50% of my clients at some stage in the coaching and sometimes from the get-go, think of leaving the organization. Yeah, because it's not, nah, they don't like it and all that. And perhaps surprisingly, coach kind of a thousand and a half leaders, right, um, all around the world, none has left the organization less than six months after coaching. So they did their, my package is 20 hours, they did their 20 hours of coaching over nine months. They found out that Perhaps they were going to leave, but there were so many things they had to experience and evolve their way of being, their way of doing things. And that was worth it, that they wanted to try before they go out. 
And so there is no duality. I have only one client, the coachee, and that is for the greater good of the business as well, because if there is no space for the coachee to have really robust brainstorming sessions about what's best for him or her next, then he, uh, he or she is going to go and have chats over glasses of wine with their friends about, yeah, probably it's better I joined that other company, right? It's much cooler. And then they leave <laughs> their organization, even if they have a coach, right? Uh, but they didn't use a coach as a candid, unbiased resource, right? And then they go and it's a bad decision. Ah, too bad. Everybody loses, right? So it's in, in the interest of the organization to have the coach serve exclusively coach's well-being with, of course, some boundaries here. Is the coach in uh, the, the code of ethics of the ICF, right? Intends to harm themselves, harm the company, harm anything, really. Bon, then we, we do pull the stops, right? That makes yeah. sense. And, you know, interestingly enough, coaching has been proven to increase retention and engagement. So if you think about these distributed workforce of today, uh, I think, and in, in also a layoff environment where, you know, if you're working in an organization and there were layoffs, I think, you know, as an organization, you want to keep people retained and you want to keep them engaged. So coaching is really a good tool in the arsenal. I, I think that's why we're seeing a lot of growth in coaching and, We'll see what the future holds for coaching. I think it's bright. Obviously, we're going through a little bit of an economic, I don't want to say meltdown, but, uh, you know, the last year has been tough. We are in a recessionary environment, high interest rates, a little bit of uncertainty with, you know, the the war in Ukraine, the inflation, energy prices. So there's a lot going on in the world. But, you know, I'm feeling very bullish about how coaching can help organizations and individuals navigate through these little bit of a tumultuous process. So, yeah, that's what we're here for, right? So I talk as I'm a coach because I've done so much coaching, uh, hundreds of uh, coaching relationships, but I don't really do a lot of coaching these days. I have like one or two clients at a time, so usually just one. But I'm looking forward to one day doing a lot more. It's it's fun what you do, don't you? I, I can tell you love it, JF, which is awesome. I love it. And I'm thinking, Alex, uh, the more complex and the more disrupted the world becomes, and that's all very sad, the bigger the need for coaching. I agree. From that kind of a cynical uh, approach, yeah, because the trend for, towards complexity and disruption uh, seems really strong for years to come. So many geopolitical and macroeconomical factors. Yeah, obviously, the need for coaching will always rise, I, I believe, yeah. Wonderful. Anything else you would like to add for the many coaches listening in? Yeah, perhaps a couple of practical tips, in fact. Right? Uh, one of the most important things, of course, that we as coaches want to uh, deliver is sustainable great value for, for our clients. right? And that means that you need to obsess at the beginning of every session, obsess about finding a really profoundly beneficial objective with clients. Often they come with an objective that is the tip of the iceberg. Don't go for it, right? So pro, go deeper and find with the client an objective that can be life-changing. Do, do we have time for a, a one-minute illustration of this, uh, Alex? Yeah, uh, of course. Of yeah, course, imagine I, I've got a, a guy called Joe. He comes to me very excited and he tells me, wow, JF, you know, I know you always want me to have uh, something important to bring to the conversation. Today I have. It's about the color of my new car. I hesitate between pink and blue. So very excited, unable to think, 
right? So I'm going to try and calm him down step by step and say, hmm, thank you very much, Joe. And I wonder what is important about that decision. So then the guy is still excited and think, oh, it's very important because, uh, uh, you know, I want to get married. It's that time in my life. I've got to, uh, to find a good wife. The car is important. The color matters, right? Well, still excited. But at least I picked up one information, right? It's about something much bigger than a car, right? So, so then still very calm. I would say thanks for sharing. And I wonder, Joe, at a deep level within you, what could this really be about, right? So then eventually the guy is going to start thinking, right? So it's going to look ugly, probably like <sighs> big sigh, hitting his head. And after a minute, the conclusion will be, JF, it's not about the car. It's like in the first place, what does it mean to be a good husband? Am I good material to be a husband? Blah, 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 blah. Right? And then the objective that, I will eventually ask for at that stage of his sort of thinking process will be find out what it means to be a good husband and how I can bridge a gap if I'm not a good husband material yet, right? That is life-changing, right? Uh, whereas choosing the color of his car he can do with his pals at the bar or uh, the coffee shop. Yeah, so do that. Extremely important. So every session creates enormous and sustainable value for your, your clients. The value of asking a few questions, right? Digging deeper, trying to uncover what's under the surface. Yeah, that, that is absolutely from the get-go. Perhaps one more tip uh, for the road, and that would be, you know, don't obsess about your questions, right? Young coaches are always in their head, uh, what is a great smart question I can ask next? Whoa, so bad. No, 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 don't do that, right? Just listen, be present, and the next question will come up organically from your whole being. And if it takes one minute, then that's all good. Why? Because the client has one minute more to process and progress, right? So don't be obsessed about the quality of the question. They don't matter much, really, because clients answer most times to the question you should have asked and didn't because that is what's helping them. Absolutely. Be present, be in tune with the conversation and track it, be there, not be thinking about. Sometimes when you obsess with adding value, then you actually are more focused on your own needs, which is to feel like you're adding value than to actually add value, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So well said. I think, uh, Alex, right? we're not in the business of adding value or helping people. We're not. We are in the business of enabling them to empower themselves to add value to their future. Empower themselves, right? We enable they empower themselves, right? To add value to them. That's the business. Absolutely. And when you put it like that, it's a very selfless business. It is really about other people focusing on their needs, but it is so rewarding. And at the, at the other side of that, if you really focus on the person, you gain so much and you learn from the way people think. It's so cool to work with different clients in different industries and in different roles. You learn so much about the context they operate under. And the really cool thing about coaching is that if you really get really good in the art and science of coaching, then you can really help people across different verticals. In some cases, an engagement would require someone to have specific expertise and the client might want it and might be a really good thing. But in so many other cases too, a coach that is a good coach that is in tune with themselves and other people and their clients, they can really tap into their knowledge and be helpful to people across different industries, seniority levels, different issues. 
coaching is a whole universe of information and it comes down to being present, right? It really resonates with me how you describe it. Well, JF, thank you so much for joining us in this episode of Coaches on Soon Drinking Coffee. It was a pleasure talking to you and I'm looking forward to your next uh, WBAX Summit by coaching.com session. Always so popular. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, it will be on 2nd of June and it will be a demo and it will be titled Coach Like Einstein Would and Enable Quantum Leaps. I, I've read a oh, lot wow. about Einstein. I think he kind of uh, invented coaching uh, in his own way, but never did it, right? Uh, we've got so much to learn and integrate about his philosophy in coaching, right? So that's going to be fun. Thanks for the invitation, Alex. Love it's that. a pleasure, really. Thanks for all you do again. Thank you so much. Love that. Einstein is one of my favorite thinkers and obviously a tremendous physicist like <laughs> unbelievable but also a great thinker and a humanist and there's a lot of sides to einstein that not everyone knows about so it is really it's fascinating i i didn't know what the topic was yet so that's great and if you're listening to the podcast jf refers to june 2023. I don't know when you're going to listen to this recording, but it may be that, you know, uh, the <laughs> that date has passed. So that's your reference right there. But JF, thank you so much for everything you do. Great connecting. And we'll talk to you soon. All the best. And thanks to the audience as well. Take care, Alex. Thanks again. Take care.